0: Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For news about In Our Time and for recommendations about our archive, please follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, the ancient Greek thinker Zeno of Elea flourished in the 5th century BC. His great innovation in philosophy was the paradox, a tool to highlight the unexpected consequences of common-sense ideas, to question assumptions and provoke new theories. For example, according to Zeno's paradoxes, motion is not possible. An arrow in flight does not move. The fastest runner in Homer, Achilles, could never catch up with a tortoise in a race if he gave it a head start. Philosophers, philosophers from Aristotle to Bertrand Russell have tried to refute his ideas or explain them with varying success. Innovations in mathematics with Newton and Leibniz went some way to demonstrate flaws in Zeno's arguments, but the questions he raised two and a half thousand years ago about time and space are as relevant as ever and have re-emerged in quantum physics. With me to discuss the paradoxes of Zeno are Marcus Jusotoy, professor of mathematics and Simonia professor for the public understanding of science at the University of Oxford, Barbara Sattler, lecturer in philosophy at the University of St Andrews, and James Warren, reader in ancient philosophy at the University of Cambridge. James Warren, what do we know about Zeno?
1: Not a huge amount, is unfortunately the answer. We know roughly when he was living and working. He's living, as you said, in the middle of the fifth century B.C. He came from Elea, a town uh, on the west coast of southern Italy, and. We know that he travelled a lot in Greece, as people of that sort of class did, and he wrote a work, maybe just one work, which included these these paradoxes, um, of which we know about, um, it depends how you count them, perhaps seven, eight, um, some to do with motion, some to do with plurality. Um, what we can do is put him into some kind of context, intellectual context, that is, so,
0: for around. Let's just go into okay. it for a, for a moment or two. Is this a village? Is it a town? Is it known as an intellectual centre? What's going on?
1: Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a city, in the Greek sense of a city. It's a polis, it's an independent uh, uh, city state that was founded by Greeks from the Greek mainland at some point. Um, it seems to have been quite an intellectual centre, in particular because uh, I think one of the most important. Uh, People in Zeno's intellectual life was, again, an Eliatic, was someone from the same city. This was a character called Parmenides, and Parmenides wrote a very peculiar poem in hexameter verse in the style of Homer, and Parmenides attempted to set out to prove that there was only one thing and that it was changeless and motionless and perfect and so on.
0: When he said there was only one thing, I mean the world was only one thing.
1: There is just one thing, yes. So whatever else you think there is, if it's not this one thing, that isn't actually there.
0: And he was he was Zeno's tutor, friend,
1: friend, tutor, something like that. It's not a it's not a formal relationship, but Plato writes a dialogue in which the two of them come to Athens, uh, and Zeno is cast as a defender of Parmenides. So that's one way to think of these paradoxes as an attempt to undercut possible objections to Parmenides' curious thesis on the basis of common-sense assumptions that, well, there are many things, and clearly things do move.
0: You said quite casually he wandered over the place of the Greek, as people did. What did he wander for? Where did he go to? How did he look after himself? Well, these aren't people who really have to work for a living. Um, So we're talking about aristocrats? Yes. Well, well enough off people. That's right, and
1: they would travel around, and they would often, I think... Um, the way in which these ideas were circulated were uh, partly through written uh, books and Zeno complains that someone's made a pirated copy of his work so he doesn't know how many of them there are in circulation which is I think a joke on uh, not even Zeno knows how many books there are Um, and uh, they travelled to the great festivals like the Athenian Panathenaia Festival and they would give demonstrations and public recitations and, and meet people there
0: and so what what was what were, he got his teacher Parmenides? <clears throat> what learning was coming to him through Parmenides, and in the context of that place that time, briefly, what was he reading that influenced him?
1: Well, what Parmenides is reacting to is a is a tradition of cosmological thinking which had been going on for perhaps up to a hundred years by now, of people who were attempting to explain the world and how the world worked and functioned often in terms of um, identifying some basic principle or element out of which the world was constructed. and Like dis- the
0: world was constructed from water. From water
1: or With air or something else. Mm. And describing the various transformations that that element or elements undergo in order to produce the varied and differentiated world that we see around us. And they're relying, therefore, on there being a plurality of things and there being things that change and are in motion in order to account for the way the world works.
0: So natural philosophers are people who believe that the world is changing and there are many things in it which are various and un- unmoving and changing.
1: Yes, and that's what Parmenides sets out to, to show is Refute. R-
0: r- ...grossly mistaken. Yes. Barbara Sattler, what is a paradox in philosophy?
2: Right. Um... If we just look at the word that comes from the Greek, then that means it's against para-common um, expectations or common beliefs, doxa, right? So that's a paradox against what people normally would assume, what is strange, what is shocking, um, and therefore what needs explanation. So that's just the meaning of the word. In a philosophical context, by a paradox, we normally understand that we derive uh, a um a problematic conclusion from sound premises so it seems we have good starting points and we do right reasoning and yet we get to a conclusion um, that's untenable and why is it untenable well either because it's inconsistent in itself it leads to a, a contradiction or it contradicts other beliefs opinions that we hold
0: can you give us a simple paradox it needn't be one of Zeno's, just to get the hang of it
2: Oh, right, so um, one paradox that's um, uh, quite famous is the, the bald man paradox. So we all would agree that if somebody has no hair, um, then uh, this person is bald. If this person has one hair, we would still call this person bald. Two hair, probably still bald, three, and so on um, – but uh, one hair doesn't seem to make a difference. But yet, if this person has 10,000 hair, it seems it's not, this person is not bald any longer, right? So, where does that stop? Is it that from 100 hair onwards, we say, oh, this person is not bald, but 99 hair is still bald? That doesn't seem to be right, right? Why not? Uh, Because it seems that with boldness, it's not um, a concept or notion where we can give a clear quantitative uh, determination. We can't say so-and-so many hairs quantify as not being bold and and so-and-so many hairs quantify as being bold.
0: But has common sense a place in this?
2: Um, yeah, this this, this uses uh, common sense that we all agree on certain um, ideas of, of boldness and we all have a problem of saying when uh, it's, a person stops being bold. And what that shows in this case is that there seem to be some notions and concepts that are what we will call uh, vague. They are fussy. We can't really fully determine them. Right um, and there's a there's a, a, a sample of them, like for instance, a heap of grain, right? If we have a heap of grain, let's say ten thousand grains, I take away one grain, it 's still a heap. I take another, uh, an, another one, still a heap. a grain doesn 't seem to make a difference. But if I take away so many that I 'm only left with one grain, there's no heap any longer. Is there an exact moment where I can say it 's not a heap any longer? Probably not. Um, philosophers have called this kind of concept vagueness concepts, and there's lots of work uh, done because it's also, in some sense, vague where the vagueness starts, right? So um, they why show. Is this,
0: why is, I can see it's intriguing and it's a yeah. lot of fun, but uh, is there any. Do, well, actually i well have discovered yeah. on this program for the last goodness knows how many years <laughs> that the things that seem very odd and eccentric and rather miraculous certainly turn out to be running the world, don't they, these ideas? <laughs>
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in this case, I think with paradoxes, there's two reasons why they are actually very fruitful for philosophers. Right? Um, it, it sounds ironic because in some sense with a paradox you had a dead end and you could say, well, okay, now should we not give up? But they are very fruitful for philosophy for two reasons. Either because they show there's some funny about some concepts, like Mr. Bold Man, right? They show we are using some concepts that can't be fully determined in the way other concepts can, um, and that tells us perhaps something either about our concepts or perhaps even about the world, that some parts of the world are best described like this, right? Um, Then paradoxes can also be fruitful in one other way, namely that um, in philosophy, a lot of what we do is actually uh, done conceptually, right? So our theories and models and concepts very often not just falsified or verified by um, the world outside, right? So how do we figure out whether our models are right or not? Well, paradoxes are very important because they tell us, okay, something has gone wrong here. You have to go back at your concept and look again whether your assumptions are really as good and true as you thought they are.
0: Marcus Yesotoy, at that, that time, you've written, uh, or you've said, mathematicians, uh, mathematics as an analytical subject was beginning to emerge. Mathematics were exploring abstract ideas uh, through mathematics. Now, would that be, can that be your starting point for talking about paradoxes?
3: Um, yes, yeah, certainly. I think that, um, uh, before, um, the ancient Greeks got their teeth into the subject, you've got the Egyptians and Babylonians doing a mathematics, trying to describe the world with this new language, but it's very geometric, it's very functional. They're measuring areas of land, um, uh, volumes of pyramids and things like that. But then the ancient Greeks, and in particular, um, sort of in the hundred years before, uh, Zeno, we have the Pythagoreans beginning to appear on the scene and, and they're trying to prove things. So they're trying to prove that, uh, It's not just a calculation that they want to do. They want to produce a proof that something will always work. So, for example... Where did that come from? Well, I think it's uh, interesting because I think that um, the Egyptian and Babylonian mathematics came from the development of the city trying to uh, actually control the land. But this idea of analytic thought actually comes from uh, Greeks actually wanting to do politics and it comes out of the idea of rhetoric and trying to explain...
0: How how, uh, How does that route work? Well,
3: I think that um, you've got suddenly the Greeks trying to prove that laws will uh, uh, work and that laws will always apply, oh, and I, so I think it sort of grows out of um, that sort of change of the city into something and into a political institution. And so I think the ancient Greeks you see a different style of mathematics and what I would really call mathematics, this idea of of analytic thinking. But it's interesting that. Um, Uh, you know, the idea of paradox is starting to appear at this time, perhaps a little bit after Zeno, as a tool, which is this idea of a proof reductio ad absurdum. Make a hypothesis, for example, that the square root of two can be written as a fraction. Um, And then you follow that through and you end up with a uh, ridiculous conclusion that odd numbers equal even numbers and then you realize that that's absurd it's a kind of paradox but the paradox is very useful because you can then work backwards and say okay something along the way was wrong and it was actually the pythagoreans who discovered no this square root of two which is a length it's the length across uh, the diagonal of a square each side has unit length so this length cannot be written as a fraction um, it can be approximated by fractions more and more, but they realise using this argument that um, there were new numbers here. So, so the idea of paradox or this idea of teasing out a logical argument which arrives at something absurd is a very powerful tool in actually questioning your assumptions.
0: One of the things, (coughs) a metaphysical thing, that the Greeks turned into mathematics was the idea of infinity, which they had problems with. How did they tackle that?
3: Well, they did have problems with infinity, and a lot of their mathematics, you can see, is is very finite, it's very geometric, it's about lengths. And this discovery that the square root of 2 can't be written as to a ratio of two whole numbers, if you write it as an infinite, uh, as a decimal, it goes on forever and ever, repeating itself, was a real challenge to their whole philosophy. But in fact, you can look back, even in the um, ancient Egyptians, in order to calculate the volume of a pyramid, we now know that they must have had some idea of infinitely dividing space. So th- it's not uh, in the documents, but the volume, the, the formula you the, that you get, actually... You have to use an idea of infinite divisibility to be able to get that formula. It's an early form of integral calculus. So already these ideas are beginning to uh, sort of bubble up and they're having difficulties with, OK, but, you know, t- t- infinity doesn't seem to exist. I can't see anything infinite. Um, so they have this idea of um, absolute a- actual infinity and um, uh What's the other one? Potential. Potential. potential oh, thank you. There you go. Uh, potential infinity. So there's a potential for infinity. For example, Euclid proves that the primes have the potential to go on forever. But there's a claim that well, this isn't an actual infinity. You can't actually have infinitely many primes. They have the potential to go on forever. So
0: um, some of these. Where, let's yes. get back to the paradox. This is where paradoxes become very useful. Because it can tease is it out t- your... Is it the key key? I mean, is it really that important, the paradox? Well, the, the
3: paradoxes will be able to, to reveal that your ideas of infinity might actually be wrong.
0: So that's what he's setting out to do.
3: Well, I think that he's trying to uh, actually support Parmenides who isn't bringing a kind of mathematical perspective on the fact that there is no such thing as motion. He's trying to actually use this now actually as a mathematical tool to, to question whether our uh, perceptions of the world are actually um, correct or not.
0: So that's the, the, the idea behind it is, say, let's see what the world is about. Let's see the reality. Uh, in one sense, of Plato is a dream, and, and but this is mathematical, by mathematical analysis it's a different reality from that which we perceive and let's challenge Parmenides, who might have been right anyway but by challenging him we might unlock this. Is there something in that uh, James Warren? I think that's right Um,
1: I think another thing to to bear in mind is that these paradoxes are sort of playful and they would have been uh, a way of Zeno embarrassing an interlocutor in the way that you might remember Socrates embarrassing people. So he takes someone, he says, well, you think things move, don't you? Yes, of course I think things move. Well, wouldn't you, for example, think that... You would you would agree, wouldn't you, that in order to get from A to B, you must get at halfway from A to B? Well, yes, of course I would have to get from halfway from A to B in order to get from A to B well, surely you would then agree in order to get from A to halfway to B, you would have to get halfway from A to halfway between A to B, and so on and so on. And here you have another example of uh, what we saw in Barbara's bald man case, this repeating uh, uh, premise. Once you've granted once that in order to get from one point to another you have to go halfway, that gets repeated and repeated and repeated. This
0: is the dichotomy paradox.
1: Right, exactly. So this is what (laughs) I think... Sorry,
0: I split it. Dichotomy paradox. Right,
1: which just means cutting in two dichotomy. And uh, that label gets associated with more than one paradox in the sources, but Aristotle, I think, associates it with a paradox of motion in the way that I've been trying to set out. So in order to uh, cross a spatial extension, you must go halfway. But then, of course, you must go halfway to the halfway and so on and so on.
0: But by saying that, what is he saying that's, that's, that's what's, that going to prove what's a, problematic a, a then? paradox? What's
1: problematic then is that you've got your person to agree that in order to cross any spatial extension, in fact that in, entails an endless series of prior journeys, if you like. So in order to do something, first I have to do something prior. And if that's an endless series of prior requirements before i even get started then you can the 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 killer line will say but you don't think you can complete an infinite series of tasks can you it would it would be impossible to do an infinite series of journeys well i suppose that's true um and there's obviously a sense in which that is true in which case it now looks like in order to cross a room that's asking me to do something impossible
0: Aristotle rose up against these paradoxes again and again, didn't he? It becomes like a sort of heavyweight championship at one stage. Zeno says this, and Aristotle weighs in, biff. What did he biff about on this one? Well, on this one, he, he thinks,
1: um, as we've just... It, it's Aristotle's distinction between potential and actual infinity. He thinks it's misdescribing the job to say that you have to complete an actual series of infinite journeys. Potentially, if you wanted, you could you could... Think of your journey as including however many sub journeys that you like. But you don't actually have to do all of those in order to cross the room. But Aristotle's working from the assumption that, of course, Zeno must be wrong because, of course, things do move and there are many things. So he, he's of the opinion that the absurdity of the conclusion licenses you to think there must be something wrong with the argument um, and he can just move on and carry on writing
0: his book on physics. But the argument goes on. That's the interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, great as Aristotle is, and so on, so he doesn't kill it. I mean, it, it c- continues, it emerges, it re-emerges. And Barbara Sattler, probably the best-known paradox is Achilles and the tortoise. Uh, Can you tell us what's happening there? Sure. What what Zeno says is happening there.
2: Right. Um, So Achilles and the tortoise is basically a variation of the dichotomy paradox that we have just heard from James. So um, imagine that Achilles, who is the fastest runner in the ancient world, um, um, has a race with the slowest runner in the ancient world, a tortoise, as its uh, later tradition calls it. And because Achilles is the fastest runner, he can give the tortoise a head start. Right. So let's um, imagine they are racing on a a hundred meter uh, racetrack. Um, And the tortoise is starting 10 meters in. So what now has to happen is that uh, first Achilles has to cover these 10 metres that the tortoise was given as a head start. But during the time that Achilles takes in order to cover these 10 metres, well, the tortoise will have moved on. Not very far because it's very slow, but let's say the tortoise moved on for a metre. Well, next thing that uh, Achilles has to do is to cover this one metre. During that time, while he's covering this one metre, uh, the tortoise will have moved on yet again, let's say 10 centimetres. Um, Again, you know, the same happens. So the um, distance between Achilles and the tortoise will get less and less, but it will never get to zero. So it seems that Achilles, even though he's the fastest run in the Asian world, will never be able to overtake this slow tortoise. Right. So that's the uh, paradox.
0: Did uh, I mean, I, I said this once before and I'll, I'll never say it again after this. Did common sense rear its head?
2: Um, so common sense, uh, if you wanted it, read its head in that some people thought, oh, OK, we can just um, uh, contradict Sino by getting up and running and showing that, you know, we can overtake somebody. Right. But I don't think that Sino wanted to show we will never experience somebody overtaking somebody else. Right. Or somebody covering a uh, finite distance. Rather, what he's telling us is. Okay, and you give me an explanation of how this happens. You give me an account. You, you describe what is going on, and you will get into contradictions, right? So even though we experience it, we can't give a good explanation of it.
0: I think the, I think the, the paradox is more interesting than common sense, actually, and obviously it leads to more things, don't you think?
2: Um, it, well, it, it, as you said before, it pops up over and over again. So that shows that people have thought, OK, there's something still going on. Some, th- something in this paradox that shows that if we try to explain motion, uh, change, uh, time and space, there are still uh, problems that we get into and that get us into these contradictions and that seen for the first time race
0: so can you unpick that more can we go into this why is this fascinating and why does it continue So I sort of rather brutally said what about common sense of course I mean boringly said that but what is interesting is that the idea goes on what is interesting is that the idea is a powerful idea and still is still employed in various ways and today so can you just let's go into that What's going on?
3: Well, there's really the challenge of the infinite, and in particular uh, something called an infinite series, because we're having to add up infinitely many things and understand whether that's actually sort of physically possible. So the the way mathematicians eventually resolve this is to say, well, OK, how long does it take... Um, Achilles to do this infinite number of tasks. So let's say he does the, the first step in half a minute the second step he does in half the time, so a quarter of a minute the third step in an eighth of a minute the next step in a sixteenth of a minute so it, it looks like he's having to do infinitely many tasks but the um, understand we understand this now that he can do infinitely many tasks because it can take him a finite amount of time. This infinite series, a half plus a quarter plus an eighth plus a sixteenth actually adds up if you do take infinitely many of them to the answer one and you can sort of see that if you imagine a, a cake and you cut the cake in half and then you cut the um, the, the half in a quarter and then uh, an eighth and then a sixteenth you can see that you'll be cutting each of the smaller pieces in half again but it won't be any more than one so we know that this infinitely uh, many tasks will take a finite amount of time and it's interesting maybe it takes less than A minute. So mathematicians had to come up with some sort of way of understanding adding up infinitely many things. And it doesn't mean that adding up anything um, will always work. Uh, For example, take the um, add a half plus a third plus a quarter plus a fifth, plus a sixth, plus a seventh, plus an eighth. Um, you might say, well, those are getting very, very small. Maybe that adds up to um, something finite. Um, but RMA in the 14th century proved that actually, no, that can become as large as you want. So Zeno is already challenging us with how do you understand how to do, add up infinitely many things in mathematics? And, and does that have some sort of physical reality? And it really took till um, 17th, 18th century for mathematicians to come up with some way to understand how to navigate these infinitely many numbers and add them up and and understand when they are finite and when they could be infinite.
0: What's fascinating to me, a non-mathematician, and I'll go back to you for a moment, Barbara, is why... uh... what grabbed people mathematicians about this why was this so important to keep studying this which was uh, I think you have used the word not me this time in your notes patently ridiculous but away they go what is so fascinating about it
2: um so one thing that's so fascinating about it is that it seems in the physical reality we don't have a problem with these things right we can uh, do this run uh, killers can overtake the tortoise no problem but yet in mathematics which we use in order to describe the physical reality there seem to be a real problem with this um, uh, dealing with infinity right so our most powerful tool to describe the, uh, the reality and to deal with it which we use in natural science all the time right that seemed to be um, to too weak to deal with that. That seemed to get us into contradictions. And if you have a contradiction, then you, know, you have a trouble with your science. It's not a, a solid science if, it's, if there's a contradiction at heart, right? Um, so that's why mathematicians were really fighting with that and saying, okay, um, if it, we, we don't want a, a, a contradiction at the very basis of our science, right? Um, and and uh, then in the 17th and 18th century, as Marcus said, uh, there was a new way of dealing with um, um, well... Um, infinite series um, um, then with Cauchy we have uh, the, the, uh, dealing with limits we have in the 19th century a new we- way of dealing with actual infinity, remember with Aristotle we had this distinction between potential and actual infinity and there was always this idea there can't be actual infinity, there can only be potential and then uh, with Cantor and others we had this idea no, there can be an actual infinity um, and that just um, needs a different way of dealing with it that goes against our intuitions by the way
0: James Warren it seems to me that that mathematics is being used in a philosophical way all the way here the the, the idea is still let's go back to Parmenides saying Mm -hmm. bluntly the world does not move nothing moves, it is one thing it is not many things, you natural philosophers have been thinking for the last few centuries it doesn't change all the time, it doesn't move on it is one thing, that's what I proposed like a previous person said, it's all water Uh, he'd done that and so we're, we're into the fact that it, it sort of has a comic aspect as, as mathematical things, right? Is only is a superficial reading of it because they're, they're, the mathematicians are going for something else, aren't they?
1: I think one one of the things that, that might emerge from talking about these um, paradoxes in a, in a mathematical way is the relationship that mathematical analysis has to these kinds of physical cases. Um so the question whether in fact mathematics is an abstracted description of what's going on or that somehow um we can construct physical extensions and so on out of math- mathematical items is 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 worth um thinking about. So for example um one of the one of the things um Aristotle complains about is that um one of these problems that Zeno raises is is I driven by the idea that somehow an extension just is an infinite connection of points, and he says well that's just not the case. you can't make a line out of points any more than you can construct a duration out of instance what What a mathematical point does is is an abstracted um, uh, uh, um, you, what you're doing is taking an extension that's already there and picking out something out of it you, you you're not constructing the world mathematically.
0: So let's let's look at that notion <coughs> with regard to the arrow right. in flight or the arrow at rest. Parmenides argued, and uh, and Zeno puts it forward that the arrow never moves. Mm-hmm. So somebody shoots an arrow, and it never moves. What's going on there?
1: Right. So the the absurd conclusion here is that the moving arrow is always at rest, and the reconstruction that we get of it from Aristotle goes something like this: that Um, If you imagine uh, an arrow that's being loosed from a bow heading towards a target, um, if you think of any point in the arrow's journey, uh, uh, by point I mean now uh, an instant, uh, a temporal point, so imagine taking a photograph of it that captures uh, um, an an, an instant in that flight. At that point, the arrow is occupying a space exactly arrow-shaped and arrow-sized, and it's not moving within that space. It's stationary at that, at that instant. Um, you can think of it that either it's too snugly held by space or there's not enough time for it to do any moving because the, we've, 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 um, we've uh, specified that we're talking about an instant, so a durationless um, point in time. But that's the case throughout the arrow's journey. You, you, could, you could pick any instant in the arrow's journey and it would always be the case that at that instant the arrow is stationary. So it seems to be true throughout the journey that the arrow is not moving. And Aristotle said? Well, Aristotle says this is false because time, a duration, is not made of nows.
0: Yes, a duration can have its sensual Can we keep on the arrow? Because it's such a uh, graphic one. People listening, you have the arrow, photograph the arrow, and it doesn't seem to be moving except for that instant. But even in that instant, 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 is it not moving fractionally, very fractionally? Are we not seeing it between two so fractional movements that we can't see the movements? Or are we seeing it? Does that rest... What does that rest mean?
3: Well, I think it's the challenge of... um, This arrow is um, a changing speed. It's um, decelerating as it goes towards... So it's got a different speed at every particular time. And it was the real challenge of... Actually, uh, for it to be moving, it has to have a speed. And if you just take um, an instant of time, the time interval is zero. Uh, Well, the distance it's gone is zero, but speed is... Distance divided by time. So you're trying to make sense of well, it doesn't have a speed then, does it? Zero divide distance divided by zero time. But you're absolutely right in the 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 way you try to approach that problem because and you've just invented the calculus, Melvin. Um, because what um, Newton-Leibniz did is to realise that actually um, this thing does have a speed, but you've got to understand it as the. Uh, time interval that you 're taking gets smaller and smaller and smaller, so um, if you take a um, the time interval of one second before the snapshot you 've done then you 've got an average speed uh, the distance it 's gone over that one second divided by the one second. Now take the time interval a little bit smaller and you get an, a, an, another average speed, but it 's slightly slower for the half second before then and the quarter second so you see though that the speed um, is actually tending towards a limit, and calculus is making sense of this challenge that Zeno has has said, well, what is the speed? It's, it's zero divided by zero. It doesn't have a speed. That's meaningless. It isn't moving. Newton and Leibniz say, no, we have a mathematics now developed uh, in, in, by my Newton and Leibniz uh, to actually understand a world in flux and be able to say at one instance of time what the speed of the arrow is. James Warren. I don't think
1: Zeno would be impressed by that. Really? really? I think that's mathematically clever oh. but philosophically not so smart because... Because you've cheated. You, uh, you've assumed the arrow is moving um, and then have described how it can be moving at a time, at an instant, on the assumption that it is uh, crossing some distance. And that's precisely what's at question. You can't help yourself to the conclusion that you're trying to get. And his second point would be, well, surely you would agree then that if, if we can allow ourselves that now is, can be described as an instant, uh, it's true that the arrow isn't
3: moving now. And if it isn't moving now, when, when on earth is it moving? Well, I would say that uh, moving means it has a speed, and uh, Newton and Leibniz have given right. you a way to say what the speed of that is. Barbara, um, <coughs>
2: yeah,
3: I... oh my gosh, are they ganging up on me? The maths <laughs> isn't that right?
2: No, 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 no I'm, actually, I'm ganging up against both of you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because so You're so. You think, so think so of so the
0: bridge it... and the man <laughs> defending it; they're all rushing at him, defending right. the bridge
2: in support of Marcus. So um, philosophers afterwards tried to actually. Um, think of motion really in that way so with Russell and others we have this idea of the at-at theory of motion as it's called so that motion is nothing but being at a particular point at a particular time right and the difference between motion and rest is just that you look at the surrounding right and if you look at the surrounding then something in motion will be at a different uh, uh, point in space at the next moment of time and something at rest will still be at the same point so that has been a famous theory at-at theory but but I would uh, g- gang up, you know, h- help um, um, James here saying this is a very useful way in mathematics to describe motion. Right. And we have come to use it and employ it all the time. It doesn't tell us that motion consists of these points. Right. It tells us we can describe motion in this way, in this mathematical way. It's very useful to do that. Uh, but it doesn't tell us that we really have understood what's going on with motion in this sense
3: well it's interesting because actually there's a, uh, a modern day effect in quantum physics which actually uh, mm-hmm. says that it, uh, mm-hmm. the motion sort of doesn't happen, it's called the quantum Zeno effect which is um, uh, quantum physics says two electrons can be uh, sort of th- uh, two places at the same time but when you observe them um, so it could be here and there but when I observe it it has to make up its mind where it is so it's there um, but then as, uh, if I don't look it starts to evolve again but if I look very quickly it's mostly there and so it collapses back into the there state so actually um, this is a ca- called the xeno uh, quantum effect because if I keep on looking at it mm-hmm. actually I can stop this thing evolving so I've actually brought a pot of uranium into the studio um, <laughs> which is the same effect if I keep on observing this I can actually stop it radiating because it, it can never has a chance to move um, because of my observation that's like
0: magic I mean it's magic. <laughs> oh, I know it's, I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm fascinated <laughs> by all this stuff and I'm fascinated by magic so there you are your hands up <laughs> so but you look at it and it stops moving now what's and, going on and it's I actually mean, b- are you, are you there anyone? Can I look at it?
3: <laughs> <something>? <laughs> so, no. As long as someone's looking at it. I, I mean, this is the challenge of, of quantum physics, and, but it's actually been done in experiments. So Turing was the first to come up with, Alan Turing, the mathematician, to with, you know, potentially this is the the consequences of this. I mean, actually anyone who's a Doctor Who fan will know that this is the key to the weeping angels, which provided you keep on looking at them are these statues which don't move, but you look away and then they start moving. So Grand so North in a Mr. way, Zeno too. is saying, you know, I'm looking at this thing, it's not moving, but if I look away, maybe it's the arrow
0: comes towards me. Where's well, Zeno? in all this, Barbara?
2: Um, well, I mean, Sino reemerges with this paradox. So people, ha- again, have chumped on, you know, the name Sino because they think there's something similar going on, a similar motivation. But I think what that brings up, this uh, um, example that Marcus just gave us, is that uh, we have to ask whether on the quantum level uh, motion works in the very same way as it does on, you know, the quantum uh, a bigger level so to say when we move right when we move we think we can talk about continuous motion and there the question is well couldn't it how do we really explain then getting from one point to the next right isn't there more to motion but on the quantum level it seems that there's this discontinuous ju- uh, jumps if you want right so motion may work completely different on this uh, level
1: James, you want to come in? Yeah, I just wanted to 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 point out that there's a there was an ancient set of you know quantum theorists who did indeed react to Zeno in a, in an interesting way. So, in in you can tell a, a reasonable and plausible story that says ancient atomist theory emerged as a response to Zenoian paradoxes.
0: This is in the fourth century BC.
1: Yeah, towards the end of the fifth and and and, and going forward, yeah. and so because what they do when they're faced with the paradoxes, as we've set them out is they deny the premise that division can carry on uh, endlessly. That they say, um, it, there isn't in fact an endless series of journeys that I need to make across the room. There's a very large number of them, but eventually you'll get to a point where you can't divide any further and you have a, an indivisible but extended um, uh, uh, space um, of which you can't uh, cross only a half of. So once you get going, um, then, then Zeno's uh, conclusion doesn't follow.
2: Um, w- I mean, one thing that shows, I think, is that Sinu's paradoxes were extremely fruitful because they sparked the following natural philosophers to come up with some solutions. So the atomic solution to say, well, there are indivisible minima and we can't go on dividing infinitely is one. Aristotle is another. All natural philosophers after Sinus, in some way or other had to find a way um, to deal with them if they wanted to do natural philosophy.
0: Did, was it, is it, can you see an overarching system overracking system in Zeno's paradoxes. I mean, Parmenides a simple overracking system, nothing moves. Right. Was, let's keep him in mind because he's the starting point. Zeno, by defending uh, Parmenides, his tutor and his friend, posited the opposite and then tried to destroy the opposite. That was his method of doing well, it.
1: it I, I think the way to put it is that what the paradoxes show is that um, the assumption that there are many things and that things move is no less um, fraught with difficulty and no less absurd than thinking that there's only one thing and it doesn't move. Um, it, so it's difficult to assert a kind of systematic approach to the, the paradoxes. We have a, a set of them that seem to deny motion on various counts. There are some that seem to be attacking the bare notion of plurality in various ways. Um, and i think it would be hard to think that there was some some kind of overarching point to them and that's in in a way why they're f- kind of fruitful because um he he isn't ta- he isn't offering a particular world view i think What he's doing is raising problems for a very, very general set of assumptions. You don't need to be Aristotle to be bothered by Zeno. You don't need to have a very specific physical outlook to be bothered by Zeno. The premises that he starts with are extremely general and very common.
0: Is there any way in which uh, we can start to characterise (coughs) how these ideas are in play now? Marcus. Um, Very um, much so. We've talked about Leibniz and Newton being exercised by them. Bertrand Russell was with his set of sets and so on and so forth. But... You, you talk in your notes about how these are in play now at, at the very deep level of I, I, I think,
3: think the idea of a paradox is is still very much used today to tease out um, and challenge our view of reality. Um, certainly when we're getting down onto the quantum level or the cosmic <coughs> level, uh, our intuition is generally quite wrong, and, and the idea of paradox is, is quite important in just saying, look, there's still something to sort out here. Um, and I think, you know, Zeno, we've, we talked about um, quantum physics and the fact that actually the universe may be made out of bits. There may be a shortest distance that um, you can go, and you can't divide that. Quantum means bitty. And even time, there is a challenge now that time is quantized and comes in bits. Um, And and so I think this idea of, um, I mean, infinitely many tasks, that was what the kind of challenge at the heart of trying to overtake the tortoise, is to do infinitely many things. Uh, And there have been sort of more recent challenges. Okay, is that physically possible in our universe? Actually, is our universe, as the ancient... Pythagoreans thought very finite in its nature and and made up of you know doesn't have uh sort of infinite decimals in in its kind of uh, makeup Uh, and so there are these new challenges called super tasks um can you switch on a light off on and off on and off and half the time between your switching the light on and off and if you do that in 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 one minute um is the light on or off at the end of this and and it doesn't seem to make a sense so sort of challenges can you do infinitely many sort of uh uh, discrete actions i guess the point about Achilles is that it's a continuous and you can join them up but if you have these discrete things of switching a light on after half a minute off after a quarter of a minute on after an eighth of a minute off after a a 16th of a minute um you can you is that actually ever physically going to be possible and what is the end result at uh the when you add all of these up at that minute whether is the light on or off uh, so these paradoxes are still very um, relevant today in teasing out just uh, the nature of reality and, and our uh, our intuition about it.
0: Before we leave this, it might be I'd like to sort of tip a bow to Parmenides. Who, as you were, he's as briefly has his idea of the world not moving got any traction at all.
2: Um, There are some people in philosophy who have now gone back to some form of monism, right, who say, well, um, at the deep uh, level of reality, there is just one thing. Some people think it is um, just uh, a question of uh, dependence. So everything depends on, you know, there being one thing, namely the universe. Other people think, no, it's just in general, there's just one thing. Um, It it sounds funny. And monism, I think, is not something that is immediately um, very uh, attractive to the common sense, but some philosophers um, um, in Jonathan Schaeffer, um, uh, Michael Della Rocca and so on, uh, contemporary philosophers have gone back to that and said, okay, metaphysically it does make sense to say at the ultimate level there is only one thing, even though it contains, so to say, everything.
0: What does it mean, one thing, one source of energy, one type of energy? Is that what we mean? Well, what's you... The th- I so, mean so the, that, one of the problems mm-hmm. we haven't addressed is what's a thing?
2: Okay, that's a very good question, what is a thing, right? Um, So it's also not clear that with Parmenides, uh, whether he really thought about the universe or whether he wouldn't think about something that's completely non-physical, right? For Mm. him, it was very important that we don't get into contradictions. So the only thing that we can think of is is just one thing, something that has no differences, uh, no distinctions, no extension, that doesn't quite sound physical to us, right? So for him, it seemed to be something logical.
0: Do you want to add to that, James?
1: No, no, no. I, I, think, I think Barbara's uh, captured that rather well. That um, uh, a, There is an attraction to monism in the sense that um, it would be nice to be, to be able to find a simple explanation. Simplicity is something that um, natural scientists look for, and what could be more simple than there really only being one thing at all? That sounds like a, a perfect end result.
0: <laughs> and finally... Marcus?
3: Well, I think mathematicians think they've sorted these paradoxes
0: out <laughs> and the invention of infinite
3: series and the calculus gives us a way to explain them. But I think actually there's still the challenge of with mathematics is really describing reality.
0: Thank you very much. I enjoyed that. Nice to be back. Barbara Sutler, Marcus Ysoto, James Warren. Thank you very much. Next week it's four legs good, two legs bad. Yes, we'll be talking about Animal Farm by George Orwell.
2: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests.
0: What did we not talk about that we should have talked about? Well, there are those. There are the paradoxes of plurality Plurality, that we
1: we we didn't discuss, and but they were they were sort of in the offing uh, (laughs) when you were asking Barbara what a thing is. Um, (laughs) Exactly. That's That's where I
2: thought should I not jump on? But you wanted to talk Um, about Parmenides. So,
1: and and those are very uh, peculiar. They
2: they ask the question basically: um, what makes one thing one thing, right? And how can we be sure that these two things here, for instance, are two different things? Well, because there's another thing in between just air, okay, but how can I be sure that air is different from that one? And they are in some sense uh, less attractive, but they raise this important question, what makes a thing a thing?
3: Yeah, I think it also relates to the tension uh, that was raised about How how can points, infinitely many points, make uh, a a line? Because a point has no distance. So if you add something which has zero distance to something which has zero distance, it's still got zero distance. And that was the real challenge of. uh, uh, And you mentioned Cantor. I'm glad you got that in. uh, (laughs) Because Cantor, uh, around that time, you're understanding the idea of the continuum. There are different sorts of infinities. So actually, if you take an uncountable number of points, it can have measure. The idea that um, uh, infinitely many points with no Uh, Size can actually be put together to make something with size. I mean, and that was a real challenge of 19th century mathematics to come up with a way of of understanding that ability Mm. to measure and make, uh, you know, a ruler is made up of distances, square root of 2, pi, and something like that, but these numbers have no distance. It's really like the Mm -hmm. arrow, Zeno's arrow. So, how can you have um, all of these numbers actually make up a a line, a
1: ruler? Mm -hmm. That's, I think, very similar to. uh, Zeno's uh, millet seed paradox, right, which is different again from the how many grains make a heap paradox, but it's it, it's saying, well, if I drop a single seed, it doesn't make
0: a noise. Well, I think it does. You see, <laughs> yeah. I just we can't yeah. hear it. That's all. Yeah. And so, maybe an ant can hear it. There goes a the millet seed. I'll pop across. And oh I'll no, have but there's a difference breakfast. between
1: it disturbing <laughs> the, right the disturbing the air. And it making a noise. But it's, it's clear that a large number but of gonna no, make can a I noise.
0: Rest, can I rest on, on mine for a moment? I know i out gone completely, but still. If it drops, in my view, it'll make a sound. And the sound can be heard by those with ears to hear. OK. Maybe an ant. That may be what it's been waiting for since you woke up this Fine. is this is the okay. millet seed. You
1: but, want? so half a millet seed then <laughs> or a half of oh, half no, a no, millet <laughs> the, uh, the
3: interesting thing is you're getting to quantum physics
1: now <laughs> because,
3: uh, and, with big ears but this is what um, Einstein won his Nobel Prize for essentially is to understand that um, uh, there, there are actually thresholds uh, mm. below which you cannot right. yeah. activate things uh, um, and so yeah. this idea of infinitely dividing something w- was a real challenge the quantum world says no well, well, you yeah. can't just keep on lowering right. the amplitude mm. of uh, a sound wave. At some point, it, it flatlines and yeah. there's a gap, and that mm. quantum gap, it's, it's the Planck constant. So I think that that's why yeah. all of these paradoxes are really still very relevant today. Mm. I mean, it's mm. this
2: vagueness paradoxes that we talked about in the beginning about the boldness and the and heap of grains. And in some sense, it also falls in there, saying, can we specify, you know, from three grains onwards, we can hear it or not? And then quantum physics tells us, yeah, we can. Um, in, but in, 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 with many other concepts, it seems just arbitrary to say, you know, okay, from five hair onwards. I was interested you
3: chose that as a paradox, actually, because I thought you were going to, as soon as you mentioned hair, I thought you were going to go for something like um, the the barber. um, The barber who uh, only who um, shave shaves those, those who don't them shave stuff. themselves which yeah. leads, uh, you realise that that's but I, I'm i glad you didn't choose that because I feel that's a, just a paradox of language in the sense that this thing cannot exist right. but I suppose that that's the point, you're trying to show that there can't be a barber who only shaves those who don't shave themselves it, the, 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 the so paradox is the, barber? Yeah, <laughs> the paradox is resolved by saying this person does not exist, your hypothesis that there is such a thing mm. so uh, I think that's, yeah. you know, there's a reductio ad absurdum. Mm. But idea. I think the,
2: the important thing was there's uh-huh. kind of two different ways in which um, paradoxes... The producer are, comes to make oh, the most okay, announcement.
1: Sorry to
0: interrupt,
1: no, but who'd like tea or half a cup of tea? Oh, tea. tea
0: or? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this will run and run.
2: <laughs> there are more than 700 programmes to download and listen to for free from the In Our Time website, where you'll also find a reading list for this episode.